And so, Father, it is in the powerful and precious name of our Lord Jesus that we pause today as a congregation here in Shenandoah Junction to lift up your church in Nigeria. These precious believers who have suffered greatly in past years and then even in recent months and weeks, having taken a great toll of loss of murders and rapes burnings and pillagings. And I pray for Tom and Heidi, our missionaries there. I pray for our associate pastor, Everett Vakacher. I pray that as they travel, they will be safe. I pray that you would cover them with your hand. I pray that you would give them discernment, eyes to see what's happening, discerning minds to even know and just um, be led of your spirit. Cover them, Father, with your hand. May your angels keep them from falling and stumbling along the path. And I pray that they would see great evidence of the gospel at work. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to stand with them in prayer and in finances. And we're very aware of the fact that none of us know what a day may bring, but that they are certainly entering into a zone that is more dangerous than what we're used to living in. And I pray for their safety in every way. And I pray that the gospel would go forward because of this trip. We look to hear a good word, Lord. We know that you are an ever-present help in time of trouble. We know that you will never leave them or forsake them. We know that they do not have to fear because you are a mighty God. And we know that um, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We pray your blessing upon them, and we pray your blessing on the preaching of the word at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As you take your Bibles and you turn to that Old Testament book of Jonah, let me give you a quiz on uh, your knowledge of children's literature. Help me out here. Snow White and the... There you go. Uh, Beauty and the... Now, here's a throwback. Goldilocks and the... Here's another throwback. The gingerbread... That's a real old one. Jonah and the... Oh. Oh. <laughs> Oh, we think of it, don't we, as Jonah and the whale. Do you have a little bit of trouble, like maybe I've even had through the years, of thinking of Jonah as a a kid's story? Some people even put it in the category of fairy tales. I mean, when is the last time you've really heard a sermon out of Jonah? Jonah is a story that we hear in Sunday school. It's a a mural that we paint on the wall, this this big... um, huge whale with its mouth open and Jonah falling off the side of the ship to be entrapped in the tomb of the stomach of the great fish. Well, I want to tell you this morning as we are opening our Bibles to Jonah that this is not a children's story. It is a story that children ought to know. This is a powerful word from God. It's our intention to have four sermons, one from each chapter for the next four weeks. But I don't want you to make the mistake as we enter this series of thinking of Jonah as a children's story or as a fable or as a fairy tale 
or some kind of allegory, I want to tell you that it is a word that will highly impact our lives. In fact, Warren Wearsby, in his little commentary on Jonah, writes this. What is the book of Jonah all about? Well, it's not simply about a great fish, mentioned four times, or a great city, named nine times, or even a disobedient prophet mentioned 18 times. It's about God. God is mentioned 38 times in these four short chapters, and if you eliminate him from the book, the story wouldn't make sense. The book of Jonah is about the will of God and how we respond to it. It is also about the love of God and how we share it with others. As I was preparing, I was even thinking... Who needs this message? Why this message series? And as quickly as I could write, I jotted down 10 reasons, 10 different categories of people, and this is not exhaustive. You need this message if you are running from God and living in disobedience. Number two, you need this message if you are thinking about running from God. Number three, you need this message if you are not paying attention to the word of God. Number four is you need this message if you have a stubborn, rebellious heart, even if no one else sees it. You need this message if you find yourself in a situation where you are angry or upset with God. You need this message, number six, if you're a racist. Number seven, if you do not give or support the giving of our missions program in our church, maybe you think that's not money well spent to give to missions. You need this message. Number eight, you need this message if you find it intimidating or difficult to share Christ with lost people around you. Number nine, you need this message if you are a skeptic, a naturalist, or an evolutionist, and you don't believe in miracles. And number 10, you need this message if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of different ways that this book will hit us and challenge us and teach us. You've had it open on your lap. You have your notes ready. Let's just take a minute and let's read the first chapter. This is the part of the book that everybody knows so well. This is the Sunday school story part of the book. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it, the ship, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, verse 4, hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, little g. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and he said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do with you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode harder to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Wow. If you have your notes ready, I want to um, lay out our story and cover chapter 1, laying a foundation even for the rest of our sermons the next three weeks ahead. I've broken down the story into four parts, and the first part, number one, is that it's the call of God. God calls. God has a call on Jonah's life, and as God calls, you need to understand for the context of what Jonah's reaction is and why he reacts the way he does is God is calling Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach a message calling them to repent of their sin because God knows that Nineveh is ready for destruction. God's call comes to Jonah because Nineveh is ready for destruction. We need to stop right here and just remind ourselves of the the unequivocal, undeniable, eternal law spiritual law of the universe that is this the wages of sin is death and Nineveh's sin is coming up before the Lord notice what it says arise go to Nineveh verse 2 that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me it reminds you of Genesis chapter 6 doesn't it where the sin of the world was so wicked and it comes up as though it's a bad odor like some kind of stench from a manure pile that that you notice and it's like what in the world is going on and the sin of the Ninevites is so horrible that it's wafting up to heaven and it's in God's nostrils and he says to himself I cannot allow this to go on much longer oh but what a God he is he wants to send one of his servants to beg them to repent of their sin before it's too late he's a God of second chances So there is a city that is sinful. It's called Nineveh. It is ready for destruction. In fact, we get a little clue if we read ahead in chapter 3. Look at verse 8. We're jumping into the middle of a sentence. And this is the king of Nineveh when he does repent. We're giving away the story. 
And he says in verse 8, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, verse 9, God may turn and relent and turn his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, the call of God on Jonah's life is driven by his hatred for sin. But God's going to give him a second chance. He gives clear instruction, letter B, to to Jonah. He gives clear instruction. Look what it says in verse 2. He says to Jonah, and notice, by the way, in this book and in this entire story, we are given such limited information. I mean, it is right to the point we're only told what we need to understand what's happening. We don't know how God spoke to Jonah. We don't know what he said. We don't know what mechanism he used. But he spoke, and he spoke clearly, and it was a two-part message. Number one, he said, go. So he gave clear instruction. Number one, go. Number two, call out, cry out against the nation. Let them know that their sin is catching up with them, and the wages of sin is death, and God is ready to cut it off. I know we're just getting going on our message, but I think this is a good point just to stop and remind ourselves that that message is true today. The wages of sin is as much death today as it was then. Janet and I were in San Antonio, Texas a couple weeks ago, and um, we were getting ready to go down some steps into the river walk there, and uh, we had been at the Alamo, and we were enjoying just a, a leisurely day on vacation in San Antonio. And my phone buzzed, and I looked down and looked at it, And it was a friend of mine from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Went to high school with him. Didn't have much contact with him until two years ago. We renewed contact. He's been in law enforcement all of his life. And on a number of occasions, as I had heard about him through the years, I had known that he had used his weapon uh, in lethal force in law enforcement. I had also known from my brother who lives in Kalamazoo, he had texted me and said, hey, He said my friend's name. He said he's been involved in another shooting. Um, When I looked down at my phone, I thought, that's interesting. This is a really tough guy. He's really strong personality. I really love him. He's... He's, um, I heard more swear words in my 10-minute conversation with him than I've heard in the last five years. But he's really a a big teddy bear. He says he's coming here. And... um, Um, I'm going to introduce you to him when he comes. And if he swears out loud when I introduce him, just excuse him, all right? (laughs) He said, hey, you got time to talk? I said, yeah, I got a few minutes for you. He said, "Um," said, I was involved in a shooting. I said, yeah, I read the paper. I looked it up. My brother told me about it. It ended up being kind of a suicide by cop kind of thing. He said, you know, this has happened before. And he reminded me of different times and... He's had an excellent career in law enforcement. He said, this one is different. I just needed to talk to you. He said, I talked to this guy for 45 minutes from just a few feet away. He said, then he finally pointed his gun at me in a way that we had to shoot. He said, we had to shoot, and then it was a BB gun. It looked like a real gun. You know, one of the things I reminded him of... I said, listen, I said, you need to understand that the wages of sin is always death. 
And then I began to walk him through all of the ways that this man had sinned. He had disobeyed his parents. He had disobeyed his teachers. He had disobeyed law enforcement for years. He had, he had violated all kinds of laws. And then he had forced a situation in this arena where they were. And he had forced them to use lethal force against him because he was even violating more laws. And I said, look, sometimes it happens sooner and sometimes it happens later. But the wages of sin is always death. And you can't stop that. The only thing you can do is hide behind the blood of Christ and not pay the penalty for your own sin. I said, Ward, what that guy did was that guy paid the penalty for his own sin. I said, that's why the cross matters. I've talked to him about the gospel many, many times. You see, the wages of sin is death. I think that was an amen right there. (laughs) I don't know who it was, but that was a good amen. God's patience will run out. And my friend, listen to me closely. The wages of sin is always death. The only way you can get out of the death penalty is to run to the cross. See, that's why the cross is so meaningful to us. That's why we just sang a hymn that says hallelujah for the cross. It's because there our sin is transferred on Christ and God, the just holy God that he is, has to kill for sin. Death is a requirement for sin. It's a universal spiritual law of the universe. And so Jesus did it for us. He died in my place and God was satisfied with that. Jesus substituted in, took the death penalty for me. And so by faith, through his grace and his mercy, I can go to the cross, repent of my sin and his blood cleanses me from all sin. And I no longer have to sit in the seat of condemnation and die for my own sin. Praise God. Praise God. That's the only way that law can be interrupted. And in this book, God wants that message given. There's still time to repent. That's a message we need to hear today that is death. We recognize in chapter 3 of Jonah, if you let your eyes go over there, in verses 8 and 9, when the king does repent, most of you know the end of the story. He says in verses 8 and 9, But let man and beast, the king calls to the people, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. First thing you need to understand about this book is that Jonah's call is based upon the fact that the wages of sin is death and God's patience is running short on the city of Nineveh and God is ready to rain down his judgment and wrath and destroy them from the face of the earth, but he's going to give them a second chance. And so in the call of Jonah, it is based upon the fact that the Ninevites are so wicked that they know it's time for their destruction. In the text box nearby, let's just remind ourselves of who the Ninevites are quickly. Uh, First of all, you need to know, number one, that the Ninevites are, are enemies of Israel. They are enemies of Israel. In fact, Israel has no greater enemy than the Ninevites. The Ninevite city, Nineveh, is the capital of the Assyrian nations, of the Assyrian city-states. The Assyrians were to the north. Jonah lived in the northern part of the northern kingdom, not far from the line where the Assyrians ruled. You need to know, number two, that they were extremely, extremely wicked, 
They were, number one, enemies of Israel, and they were the capital city of Assyria, which was the all-time great enemy of Israel. Number two, they were extremely wicked. They were steeped in occultism, paganism. They were the most cruel, fierce, harsh people on the face of the earth. Number three, you need to know that God, through Hosea and Amos, who were contemporaries of Jonah... Through Hosea and Amos, God had already told the Israelites that he was going to use the Assyrians to come down from the north as his, as his rod of judgment upon Israel. And, and it had been prophesied by Amos and Hosea already that the Assyrians were going to be the instrument of God's wrath to punish disobedient Israel. You see, their king was Jeroboam at the time of Jonah. Their king was Jeroboam, and Jeroboam ruled Israel for about 40 years, and he was a wicked man. God had had enough. And so all of Israel understood that they hated the Assyrians and they knew that the Assyrians had already been prophesied by their prophets, by God, that they were going to be the instrument of wrath upon Israel. They hated the Assyrians. They feared the Assyrians. They loathed the Assyrians. The city of Nineveh was the epicenter of Assyrian power. Secondly, you need to understand that not only does God call because he's ready for destruction of the Ninevites, but he calls, notice verse 2, he calls with a clear instruction, a clear word of instruction. Arise, go, number one, go, can't misunderstand that, go to Nineveh, that great city, and do what? Number two, call out against it. Jonah unequivocally understood exactly the call of God upon his life. God could not have spoken to Jonah any clearer. We don't know how he spoke. We don't know what Jonah heard. We don't know how he got the message. Let's just think back in our text box for just a minute about who Jonah was. You really don't know that much about him, I'll bet, other than he got swallowed by a great fish. First of all, number one, you need to know that Jonah was a prophet, and he was a godly prophet. He was a man of God, and if you write down 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, he is mentioned there, Jonah, the son of of, um, uh, Amittai, you will notice that his prophecy is there, it was true, he's a man of God. Many Bible students think that at this time in Jonah's life, he was very mature, A little bit like Daniel in the lion's den. Do you recognize that Daniel in the lion's den, according to a chronological study of the book of Daniel and Daniel's life, he had to be at least in his 80s when they threw him in the lion's den. Many Bible students think that Jonah was very mature and maybe a white-haired man by the time God spoke to him to pronounce judgment against the Ninevites or to to go and call for their repentance before he strikes them down. So he was a prophet... Not only that, number two, you need to think of Jonah, and you might not think of him this way, but you need to think of him as a a patriot. He so loved Israel, and he was so aware that that the Assyrians were going to be used to bring judgment on Israel, and he hated that. Any patriotic Israelite would have longed for the Assyrian destruction. So here's how this affects the story. God is calling Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach repentance. And Jonah knows that God will give him a second chance. And Jonah is a patriot. He loves his country. And he doesn't want the Assyrians to have a second chance. He wants God to wipe them off the face of the earth. And so God calls, number one, 
Nineveh is ready for destruction. God gives clear instruction. Go, call out, and and Jonah does what? Number two, Jonah runs, verses three through five. But Jonah rose up to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Look up at the screens for just a minute, and notice where Joppa is. That's where Jonah begins. About 550 miles to the northeast is Nineveh. By the way, number three, I don't think I gave that um, under Nineveh. They are expected to raid Israel. And you might add into that text box on information about Nineveh that it is the present-day city of Mosul, Iraq. Mosul, is we didn't know anything about Iraq and Afghanistan Pakistan, all these countries now, every day they're in the news for the last 20, 25 years already. Mosul, Iraq is where Nineveh was. It was a 550-mile trip over land to Nineveh. Jonah gets on a ship and heads to Tarshish some 2,500 miles away over by Spain. (laughs) God calls, and he says, there There is no way that I'm going there. I want you to wipe them off the face of the earth. Number three under Jonah, he's a prophet. I didn't finish that. He's a patriot. And number three under Jonah in your text box is he provides a pattern for us as well. The Bible calls it a sign. And you might write down Matthew 12, 41 Jonah and this story, you need to understand, and we're going to hit this again later, but Jesus fully believed in the historicity of Jonah. See, Jonah is criticized as a fable by skeptics of the word of God. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, and in Luke 11, verse 29, it's accounted for us there that Jesus fully believed that there... And the Jews, the Pharisees asked for a sign. He said, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. That just as he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth, in the belly of the earth, three days in the grave, three days and three nights, and he'll rise again, just like Jonah came forward. Jesus fully believed and knew that Joseph, that Jonah was a real prophet. He really lived. He really spent three days in the deep sea, in the belly of a great fish. So under Jonah, he was a prophet, he was a patriot, and he's a pattern of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Back up on our main outline, God calls. Nineveh is ready for destruction. He gives clear instruction to Jonah, go and call out against them and tell them to repent. Number two, though, Jonah runs. We've already read that, that Jonah runs. Notice on the screen that he ran the opposite direction. He ran the opposite direction, and he ran under a foolish assumption. He ran under a foolish assumption, and it is that he could flee from the presence of the Lord. Have you ever noticed when you don't like God and you are upset with God, how jangled up you can get in your own theology and the things that you begin to tell yourself that you know are not true? You can convince yourself of things that are not true. You know in the pit of your gut they're not true and you will still make decisions based upon that. As you run from God, you are upset with God, you are angry with God. Jonah, this great man of God, had spent his entire life living for God. He knew the word of God. In fact, he would have known these verses. 
These were written before him. This would have been part of the scriptures that he would have studied. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Uh, uh, So, class, where does God not see? Nowhere. Double negative. He sees everywhere. He would have known this, uh, uh, is it Jeremiah? It's Job. Psalms 139.7. Where shall I go from your spirit? The psalmist wrote. Or where shall I free from your, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Jonah, you are there. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. How about Job getting back to the most ancient of literature in our Bibles that surely Jonah would have known? For his eyes are on the ways of a man and he sees all of his steps. I was standing on the front porch of my parsonage that we lived in the first few years that we ministered in Effort of Pennsylvania. A young man in our church about the same age as I at the time, about 27, 28 years old, pulled up on his motorcycle outside my gate and I walked down the side sidewalk. His wife had been at our home crying and I knew that things were really bad. He pulls up at his youth pastor's house on his motorcycle, takes off his helmet, stays on his bike and he looks at me and he said, I stopped by just to tell you I'm leaving. <laughs> I can't. That's happened to me more than once. If you're running from God, why do you stop at your pastor's house to tell him that you're leaving? I had a 16-year-old boy one day. I looked out my window and I looked out and he came to my gate. He came in the front door. He said, I just stopped to tell you, Pastor Van, that I'm running away from home. (laughs) The guy on the motorcycle looked at me, said, I'm leaving. And I knew what he was doing. I knew what had been going on in his life. And I just pointed at the road and I said, go. I said, and you better go very fast to outrun the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. Jonah knew that. He knew it. What's he doing? It's the lesser of evils, man. I'll do anything but go to that Assyrian city-state of Nineveh. And he runs from the presence of the Lord. And so it's a foolish assumption that he can do that. Obviously, he can't do that. Notice then that God gets everyone's attention. Verse 4. He gets everyone's attention, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. He gets on the ship, they take off, they cast off, and immediately a mighty tempest hits them. And the ship is threatened to break up. The mariners are afraid. And they have this strange reaction. Notice at the end of verse 5. And they hurled the cargo in Uh, that was in the ship, into the sea. That's what the mariners do. The strange reaction is the end of verse 5. It's Jonah, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Don't you think that's weird? He gets on this ship. He, He probably hadn't sailed very much, if at all, in his entire life. It's possible that he was seasick. There's a horrific storm going on. These ships are not that big that he could not, he had to have known there was incredible hubbub. He knew they were casting off cargo. He knew that these seasoned Phoenician shipmasters and sailors and mariners were fearing for their lives, and Jonah is asleep down in the bottom of the boat. I think that sleep sometimes is the Christian's drug. 
He wanted to avoid reality. He did not want to face the truth. He was just going to go down there and go to sleep and just let God kill him. Go ahead and let the ship break up and drown while I sleep. Hmm. We must move on. We have the mariner's cry. It was a strange reaction. It was letter D, number two. Number three, the mariner's cry. Notice then that, and you know the story well, the captain comes, shakes Jonah awake, rise, you sleeper. What's going on? They get together, verse 7, and they cast lots. You see, these Phoenician mariners would have been polytheists and syncretists. They would have believed that there was a god of the sea. In Greek mythology, that would be Neptune. He was someone to be feared. And when, when you did not do enough to appease their wrath, they lashed out in storms and in deadly, tempestuous occurrences. And so you lived in fear of all of these gods, little g. They had hundreds, if not thousands of them, and they made sacrifices. And they decided that the god of the sea was upset and that they needed to sacrifice someone to the god to appease his wrath. And they decided to cast lots to figure out who it is they should throw overboard. And we see letter A, sovereign selection. Sovereign selection. Come, let us cast lots, verse 7, that we may know on whose account this evil has come. So they cast lots. The lot fell on Jonah. What do you know? And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? In their mind, it was just another God. It was just another angry, ferocious God who needed appeased. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Isn't that interesting? He had a testimony among these pagans, I'm running from my God. Verse 8, pagan perception, tell us on whose evil. Their perception was that somebody had done evil, so therefore they needed to appease the gods. Sovereign selection, letter A, pagan perception. But on Jonah's part, verses 9 and 10, there is no confusion. He knows that there's no angry, mythological, polygod out there. He knows that it is the God who created heavens and earth. He knows that he's running from God. He knows that God is trying to get his attention. No confusion. Final solution, verses 11 through 15. They cast lots. But they recognize there's been no court of law. They recognize that there's been no trial or hearing. They recognize that if, though they cast lots and did it kind of fair that if they throw the guy over, he's going to die. They would be guilty of murder, and there's been no trial. They don't like that idea. They, they haul in, and they try rowing again, trying to... It is of no use. They recognize their boat is going to break apart. Their ship is going to break apart, and they decide, we better just do whatever we can. We're all going to die anyway. They grab Jonah and throw him over. 100%. The mariners believed that Jonah would die, and 100% Jonah believed he would die. And he even said, throw me overboard that I may perish. He would rather die than get right with God at this moment. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? How hard his heart has become. 
The final solution then was to throw Jonah overboard. Notice immediately the storm calms, verses 15 and on. So they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Verse 16 makes it look like there's been a big revival on board. I think that they just recognized there was another God they had better make sacrifice to. They do recognize that he's the God of the Hebrews, the one that they believe created heaven, the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea. They feared the Lord exceedingly. In other words, they were awed and afraid that they had finally touched the nerve of the right God because they saw the seas immediately stop. Can you imagine being there that moment? The storm calms, and what we have is a testimony of the God of creation. And I want you to know that, that, that this part now of the story is probably the most uh, pointed-at section for skeptics. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And people say, give me a break. And I say, if you don't believe in the God who created fish to begin with, you won't believe in a God who can appoint fish to do and be wherever he wants at any time. This is not hard for God. We have no idea what kind of fish it was, some kind of a sea monster. Imagine, imagine this some big, huge, sleepy fish that's in the Mediterranean that nobody even knows about every once in a while. You see a headline about what some guy catches off of the coast of North Carolina or whatever. Some sleepy fish down in the bottom of the Mediterranean and God stirs its pea-sized brain and he says, start heading to the surface. They throw Jonah overboard. The seas are raging. Jonah plunges into the dark sea and I am... I, I don't think the mouth of the great fish was waiting. I think that Jonah went down into the water, fully believing he was going to die, and then he was enveloped in complete, utter darkness. Having to stop and to wonder, what in the world is going on? Am I dead? Am I in Sheol? What is happening here? And he's engulfed by the guts, and in the gut of this huge fish... Now, a lot of people at this point want to say, yeah, you know, I did a little research, Pastor Van, and there was this Finlander fisherman. He was up in, up in the Arctic Ocean whale fishing, and, and he harpooned a whale, and it, the rope snagged around his leg, and it pulled him overboard, and the fish swallowed him. And later that day, they harpooned the fish, and they cut him open, and the guy was still alive. I can really see how this could happen. I'll tell you something. You don't have to see how this could really happen. It happened because God did it. It's a miracle. God appointed this fish. You'd say, well, how did he get the oxygen? And how? I have no idea. He's just slammed down in the gut of this fish, smushed in to the digestive part of the fish's gut. And there he is. Can you imagine how utterly black and dark it was in there? What a God we have. And Jonah finds himself in detention. It's a time in detention. You remember detention, don't you? You haven't been doing what you're supposed to do. You have not been keeping the rules. You have not been obedient to the word of the teacher. You must head to detention. It's exactly where Jonah is. He is being detained by God to get his attention. A couple of closing 
thoughts. One thing you have to get out of the story so far, isn't it, is that God has spoken clearly. (laughs) Can I tell you that God has given us a book that speaks more clearly to us than surely what God spoke to Jonah? Reread Hebrews chapter 1, where he tells us that God has spoken so clearly in these end times through his son, the Lord Jesus. You cannot not know that God has spoken. The question is, are you obeying or are you running? Are you obeying or are you running? Are you paying attention to the word of the Lord? Are you picking and choosing the parts that you want to obey? I deal with people like that in my office all the time. Oh, Pastor Van, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. The Lord has never left me. I know Jesus is always with me. And then they recount all the reasons they're there to see me, all of the sin that they're involved in. I know it's not right, but I know that God loves me. I want to tell you, man, God has spoken. You better listen. See, when you're running from God, you convince yourself of all kinds of things that aren't true. And one is that somehow you and God can work up some kind of special deal. Trust me, you can't. There are no special deals in the Bible. There's only one deal. It's the cross. It's the shed blood of Christ. It's forgiveness of sin through Christ. It's being made into a new creation. It's being made new in your mind so that you don't think the way you used to think. Number two... Could it be today that you're in a stormy sea and that you know exactly why you're in that stormy sea? I just was so profoundly impacted by Jonah's absolute understanding of himself and God and yet his determined disobedience. And I believe that most people, when they are deep in their storms, They might react by saying, God, what are you doing? I prayed and you don't answer prayer. I'm so upset and even quitting church, running from God, whatever, just angry and upset with God. And if you would just sit still and tell yourself the truth, I'm going to suggest that you know exactly why you're in the storm. For some of us, it began many years ago when we began a sequence of decision-making that was outside the will of God, and we disregarded God's revealed word. And now, years later, we recognize my life is a mess. I'm in tempestuous seas, and it's everybody else's fault. No, it's not. It is a sequence of bad decision on your own part or an unwillingness to hear the word of God and submit to it. And that was Jonah. I refuse to submit to the word of God. Number three, what are the escape mechanisms that you're using right now in your life if you're far from God? Jonah went down and went to sleep. On Friday night, we have our U program. It's going well. Don't forget that ministry is there. God is using it. You know, what that, you know what that whole Friday night Bible study, discipleship-based recovery program is all about? It is all about helping people define their escape mechanisms from God. Some people use powder up their nose. Some people use pictures on the Internet. Some people use food. Some people 
abuse other people and manipulate and control. Oh, there's a grocery list of escape mechanisms of the things that we will do, the things that we will do to even hurt ourselves to avoid coming to the place that we're going to get Jonah to in chapter 2 where we finally say, okay, God, (laughs) you can be God. I won't be. There's a lot more left in the story. Will you stand with me? Let's bow our heads before the Lord. If you're running from God today, would you stop? If you're not listening or if you're asleep, would you wake up and engage? Let God have control back of your life. Father, we turn to you and we need your help. We are so given to bad decision-making in our lives. And it's so easy for us to let the flesh rule and for us to make excuses, but you have spoken so clearly. Father, would you renew in our hearts the joy of our salvation and the joy of obedience? As difficult as it is, maybe to forgive, maybe to stop being bitter, to stop some specific ongoing sin in our lives that we protect like some kind of pet puppy or kitten, like it means the world to us. And it's driving a wedge between us. Father, would you take over our lives that we would see the seas calm and the storms wane as we walk in obedience before you. May your Holy Spirit continue to use the word as you see fit in our hearts throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.